0: I'm Jeff Cohen. Harry Rothenberg is a partner at the Rothenberg Law Firm with offices in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. He's well known for his many successes in the courtroom on behalf of victims of catastrophic injuries. Harry's also passionate about speaking on Jewish topics. He's a sought-after lecturer and the host of a super popular video blog about Jewish holidays and the Torah portion of the week. He joins me now to share his story. Harry, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you for having me on. Give me a sense of your early childhood from a religious perspective. So from my
1: earliest days, I guess I found some things interesting in that I wore a yarmulke and I would go to school dutifully um, from my very early days. As I got older and feistier and more independent, I started to find my Judaism or Jewish practice very boring the learning was very rote. I have no doubt that it was my fault. I, I'm not, I don't want to blame the rabbis who were the, the educators. I just needed a, a different type of, uh, of study, I suppose. I didn't really find it captivating. I did it because that's what we did in the home, um, but it was not inspiring to me. And then as I got older, let's say teenage years, I would characterize my level of observance as I didn't let Judaism get in the way of a good time. Um I'd rather not go into details with respect to that. Um, but that is where I was holding when I went off to uh, went off to college.
0: So, I think this is an important point because our listeners might think that everybody's story is starting off with this secular position, and then there's this journey to Jewish observance. But here comes Harry Rothenberg, who you're born into an observant family, but that doesn't mean that there's no questions. There's no journey. There's no questioning why you're why you're on this path in the first place.
1: Right. and and I was observant. In other words, I would, if you would ask me at any any time in my life whether I was Sabbath observant, the answer absolutely would have been yes. Um, but a lot of that observance involved corner cutting. So, for example, I got friendly with a guy in college. At both of the colleges that I attended at University of Pennsylvania and at Columbia, who would check the IDs on the way to the gym so that on the Sabbath, I would go in, he would know, oh yeah, that's the guy who can't carry his ID. So I would just wave to him and he would let me in to play basketball on the Sabbath. So because God forbid, of course I wouldn't carry on the Sabbath. But in the meantime, I'm in the gym playing ball, which is not something that I'd be doing now. Um, Funnier example is when I tried yeshiva the first time when I was 18 in Israel, it did not work out. I was uh, forcibly relocated, um, but while I was in yeshiva, we would often go to spend Shabbos in the holy city of Tel Aviv or in the equally holy city of Natanya. and a lot of our Shabbos activity, after a quick few prayers on our own in the hotel room, and then some meal that we would that, that involved whatever food we bought uh, Friday afternoon, would be going to the beach. Now, same problem. You you need a towel. But you can't carry your towel to the beach, so we would wear our towels to the beach (laughs) on Shabbos in Tel Aviv and in Netanya. We kind of like, you know, put it around our waist, so we'd be wearing it. We're not carrying. So, again, you know, yes, Sabbath observant, but certainly not within the spirit of the day. Maybe we were just within the letter of the law, maybe, um, but certainly not within the spirit of the day. And those Shabbosim were very different than the way I celebrate it now.
0: And so you mentioned you're not necessarily connecting with the Judaic studies as much as the general studies growing up, but it's not getting to the point of, is this the lifestyle I actually want to lead when I'm an adult? I'm going to continue sort of cutting these corners and finding my way, but I'm not necessarily going to get to the point of, I don't even want this lifestyle altogether.
1: I don't know. There were certainly some times where it got awfully close. Uh, There was a period of time where I was at college taking my yarmulke off to go to frat parties, dating somebody who was Jewish but not observant tremendous pressure to go out on Friday nights. Like, what's the problem? You know, I'll drive. You could just be a passenger. And it was very, very tempting. Uh, I transferred from Penn to Columbia because I just felt that at Penn, I was forced to take my Yamaha off in order to have a social life. Columbia at the time, now it's probably equal. Penn's very different. This is going way back to the the earlier mid-80s. But Columbia had a far greater percentage of nominally Shomer Shabbos students, or students that came from Shomer Shabbos um, homes, so there wasn't the same pressure to take off a yarmulke in order to have a social life. But I struggled with it. It was a big question. And coming out of Columbia, when I'd gotten accepted to law school at Harvard, I had some soul-searching to do. And so over the summer, between junior and senior year, I said to myself, like, what am I doing? I'm either an adult, or I think I'm an adult, or I'm becoming an adult, and everything else in my life, I do full bore. As a sports fan, I am all in. As a student in my secular academic studies, I am all in. When I'm playing ball on my my league teams, I am all in. And when it comes to my Judaism, you know, I'm Jew-ish. Like I, not only not all in, I'm at best half-baked. I, I'm still doing things. I don't know why I'm doing them. If I don't do them, maybe I feel a little guilty, and I don't know why I'm feeling guilty because I don't know why I'm supposed to be doing them. Maybe there are things that I should be doing that I'm not doing, things that I am doing that I shouldn't be doing. i got to figure this out, and if it's right, let's do it the right way, and if it's not, then why am I doing it? Um, so I was really at a crossroads, and that's when I decided to, um, after college, to defer a year and to go to, back to Israel for a year to a different yeshiva.
0: So I want to get into Israel in just a minute, but I want to back up to Penn for a second because that's something you and I have in common. I also went to Penn, but I was completely secular at the time. So I didn't have this challenge of which world am I living in. I'm wondering when you made the decision to go there, did you think about the challenge of living in a school, being in a place where you weren't going to have the whole infrastructure like they have today and what those challenges would be and how easy it would be to stay observant with that environment?
1: I'm not sure If I did that kind of introspection or analysis, I was very young when I started. I was 16 when I started because I had skipped a couple grades. My first year, I was still living at home. My mother, before I got my driver's license, would would drop me off on the campus at the beginning of the day and then pick me up at the end of the day. Um, I was that big a a geek. Uh, The second (laughs) year, I moved onto campus and I got contact lenses. So that's when all of a sudden... It was whammo, um, so I don't remember whether I thought about it beforehand or just woke up one day realizing this is a problem, um, because it was. It was instant desire to have a social life, instant ability to have a social life, and trying to remain within the, the confines of the strictures with which I would, was brought up, and not really being able to articulate them for myself, not appreciating the, the depth or in the, and the meaning of them. There were rules, and I had spent my whole life cutting corners on the rules, and so I cut corners on those rules also, these social mingling rules.
0: But you mentioned the decision ultimately to transfer to Columbia to be in a better environment from a Jewish perspective. There probably could have been a story that went the other way of, I like Penn, I like the education that I'm getting, and you know what? It's okay, I'm going to kind of fall off the path for these years, and maybe I'll re it. How did you get to that decision of, I have to get out of this place even though it's a great school and be somewhere else where the the Judaism piece can stick a little better.
1: I think that the big man upstairs is watching over me because I made the decision to apply and got accepted during my sophomore year just before I started dating somebody who was non-observant. I think had I started that relationship afterwards, I would have stayed. But I had already made my decision. I had already accepted. I had already told Penn that I'm not coming back. Had I stayed at Penn and in that relationship, I think I would have been long gone And I don't think I would have been on this podcast. I might have been on some other podcasts, (laughs) not on this one.
0: Fair enough. And so uh, many of our listeners obviously know your family's law firm. Was that something in the cards for you? Also, as you were going through school, you mentioned Harvard Law. Did you know even at an early age that that was going to be the the ultimate path for you? So
1: yes and no. Yes, I knew at an early age that I wanted to be a lawyer. I can't remember a time in my life that I wasn't telling people that I want to be a lawyer, just like some of my kids will, will tell people including my daughter, who just finished law school and took the bar um, and is working as a lawyer. Um, so I always wanted to be a lawyer. I did not know that it was going to be with the firm, certainly not while I was in Harvard. I had big firm practice in mind, and that's where I started. Uh, it was in my third year that my father convinced me to come over and join the family practice. So yes, but no, was not planning during those early years that I was definitely going to join the firm.
0: Right. And then when you were talking about Harvard Law School, you decide to go to Israel again to give it another shot. And as you mentioned, you don't do anything halfway. So this was your way of saying, if I go all in, is this really for me? Or what, what did you want to accomplish by that second trip to Israel?
1: I wanted to check it out and make decisions. And it just so happens that if if ever in my life, I put this 1A and 1B, I don't even know how to rank them. Like I guess 1A has to be meeting my wife. That's the ultimate shidduch. But just behind it, 1B, is the shidduch between, however it ended up happening, was the, the shidduch between... Or Sameach, and me. It's funny when I think people say to me, so how did you choose Or Sameach?" And the answer is that I visited uh, some different yeshivas in Israel. One, there aren't an unlimited number that cater to people who had gone to day school. So I had a background. So I'm not coming in as as somebody with no background at all. On the other hand, a lot of the places for people who have a background are places that expect you to you know, jump in and be able to study 6, 8, 10, 12 hours a day. I was not ready to go to a place like the mirror. I hadn't kept up any study since high school. And even in high school, my study was not at a particularly uh, impressive level level because I wasn't interested in it. And so Or sameach had a base measures program wherein it wasn't the very beginner classes, which are people who had, who had already gone through the beginner classes. And so that was perfect for me. But the, the truth is that I chose Or sameach because it had better athletic facilities than the other places that I checked out. <laughs> I remember one in particular where I said, so what do the guys do for, for athletic activity? And they said, well, they jog, you know, around the block. Uh, I said, well, what else? He said, well, you know, they they, they jog. And then in Orsameach... They said, um, you know, across the street, we have a field. The guys use it for softball and for football. And around the corner, there's a basketball court. And some guys are, you know, are, are members of a gym. And it was, a, and I said, okay, this is definitely the place for me. And I played football and softball across the street. And I played basketball every day except for Shabbos around the corner. And joined the gym with um, with some friends. Little did I know that that was ridiculous that wasn't what i was going to get out of it the fact that they had the the right athletic pursuits was a match made in heaven
0: so what was it about the program that really hooked you and grabbed you
1: first was that it was the first time in my life that i felt that i was treated like a a big boy i wasn't going to get in trouble for answering questions I wasn't going to have my activity monitored. Why weren't you at services this morning? That happened at the first yeshiva I went to in Israel. And I would say, I'm sure obnoxiously, and I feel bad about that, but I remember saying to the rosh yeshiva, like, I don't understand. I go, how can I be in trouble with you because I missed services? You want to tell me I'm in trouble with with the big man upstairs? That I understand, but why am I in trouble with you? It would drive me crazy. And so the so the difference at Or Sameach was from day one, the only rules were, no girls in the dorms, no drugs in the dorms, and don't turn lights on or off on Shabbat because there are people who are keeping Shabbos. And I, I remember asking the dorm counselor, that's it? No other rules? What about the other 610? <laughs> and he said, we're not going to force you to do anything. If we force you to do something here, are you going to do it when you get home? I said, no. He said, so why would we force you to do anything? And that was very different than the way I had been treated previously. That was nice, but much more importantly was that the type of study that was done was the type of study that was very fit for me, which was uncovering slowly but surely, like with like taking a shovel and just digging down and digging down and digging down and staying on a point until we reached some resolution, or if not resolution, like opened up the sukya uh, And so the, the person with whom I was closest was Rabbi Malevsky, Zatzal, he was my Rebbe, and he used to give a Parsha shear four or five hours a week on each week's Parsha, now imagine, imagine you going to a, to a sheer this week on the Parsha, Sunday for an hour and Monday for an hour and Tuesday for an hour and <laughs> Wednesday for an hour and Thursday for an hour and not once looking at the clock, meaning like, oh, come on, enough already. The opposite, like he finished be like, oh, I can't believe it's, you know, it's over already. It was, um, it was going to, it was watching like the, the you know, like master musician at, uh, at Lincoln Center or, or Carnegie Hall, but he grabbed my attention and never let it go. It became increasingly clear to me that you know maybe these volumes behind me of the Talmud that was written by the rabbis. It's a discussion of the oral law, but they didn't write the oral law. They recorded it, but they didn't write it, and they certainly did not write the uh, the Torah that that came from upstairs. Uh, and then the, the the last piece was that we got to go to the homes of the rabbis on Shabbos and I got to see the the interaction just the manner in which they interacted with their wives and with their and with their children they were practicing what they preached now that's not to say that we didn't have Shabbos in my house growing up we did have Shabbos but it was it was much looser we would sit down of course we would sit down for a Friday night always together and we would switch off between talking about Philly sports and killing each other and playing basketball in the uh, in the hallway we had a lot of fun it was it was very enjoyable but the you know the parsha content wasn't necessarily there now it is my family is all of us have, have grown together which is not simple because it can't be uh forced on your kids you know you i always tell people you try to force judaism on your kids you're going to accomplish two things number one you're going to turn them off and number two you're going to wreck your relationship with them and even worse number three often you'll wreck their relationship with god by trying to ram it down their throats. So that's a big no-no. And that's the tricky balancing and the tricky tightrope walking that parents have to do in these days because we are competing with the street. So we gotta keep it fun and we gotta keep it interesting. Um it can't be, you know, come to the Shabbos table or, or else. Like or else what? You, you're gonna punish me because I didn't come to the to the Shabbos table, Dad? You're gonna punish me because I didn't sing Zmiros? You're gonna punish me because I didn't read my Parsha sheet or or ask questions on the Parsha? can't be that way. That's that's, that's a recipe for disaster.
0: This is an important question because you think about parents today and the money that they're spending on the yeshiva education, and they're thinking, I want to get something for that investment. And what do I want? I'd like my kids to stay on the same trajectory or go even further than what I've done. But it takes more than one ingredient, sending them to yeshiva to have the outcome that you want. So you just hit on some of these ingredients. So what do you think are some of these other pieces of the puzzle that Raise the odds that your kids will grow up and still love what you're raising them with. So I think it's
1: critically important for them to see your interest and your desire and your passion. There is no way you are going to sell to kids that the Parsha is interesting if you pay no attention to it. So my kids also know that I love a good Dvar Torah. When I hear a good Dvar Torah, it's like, wow. It's unbelievable. Like, I got to tell it over to strangers on the street or on the bus. So my kids see that. Like, they see how much I enjoy a good devoratory. So that's the one thing I can think of.
0: I now want to go back to your story where, where we left it off. You're at Orsamac. You have this deferral at Harvard. So how long do you end up staying there? And what is the plan for when you'll ultimately come back?
1: I ended up staying there for another year. Getting the first year deferment was very straightforward. You have a certain number of spots. You get your request in in time. You got it. Second year is very difficult. You have to write to the admissions committee. You have to explain to them what you're doing and why you're doing it, how you're going to benefit, how the class is going to benefit. And so uh, the Russia Shiva of Nata Schiller, uh, whom I'm still very close, um, is a gifted writer. And who better to help me craft a letter explaining what I'm going to be doing for the year studying Talmud. And so he helped me uh, craft this letter, and I sent it in and, uh, and davened, and the answer was yes. And so I got the, um, the second-year deferment. Uh, then came back, and there was a young woman who I had started dating while I was a junior at Columbia. She was a first-year student at Barnard, and we had started dating. And I certainly was not that serious when I was 19, but after two years at Orsamach, I was very serious and um, came back, and, uh, and we got engaged at a Sixers game up on the big screen, and she said yes, and, and thank God. So I was uh, now a married man uh, by the time I got to law school and much more serious about my, uh, about my Judaism and, and keeping up my, uh, my study and raising kids to hopefully feel that same passion that I now have.
0: And you chose to come back. We've done some interviews where someone gets hooked into Aish or Sameach, they're there for a year, and then it's two years, and then it comes to the point where they're telling their parents, I know you thought I was going to be a lawyer or a doctor, but I'm so turned on by this, I actually want to work in Kiev or move to Israel permanently. So was that on the table at any point, or you knew you were going to come back? So it wasn't on the
1: table the first time around. Um, I was definitely coming back, coming back to get married, coming back to, to start law school. I had promised my parents for the second year. I said, I, I don't know if they made me, but I had offered to sign a contract one more year. And my mother <laughs> was worried. He's never going to come back. Um, and, but when I went back after law school, married with two kids. And started teaching. I had not planned to teach, but Jeff Seidel said, you want to play on my football team? You got to tutor your fellow teammates who are non-observant students at Hebrew U and kicking and screaming. I said, yes, because I really wanted to play on his football team. And I ended up spending my entire afternoon theater by the end of the year, three or four hours a day studying with these great guys from Hebrew U. And of Nutza Schiller asked me, he said, look, you know, this is a great thing you're doing. We could create a position. Do you want to stay? And that was a tough decision. And I do not know whether I made the right decision. I will not find out for a long time. I hope, you know, at 120 when I get up to the pearly gates. There are two questions they ask you when when you get up there. Were you covea itim la I'll be able to answer that yes, not to the same degree or the same amount of hours that I would have been able to do if I was there. And were you honest in business? And that one, I hope to be able to, you know, to answer yes. And that's important. So I'd like to think that I made the right decision, but I don't know. We'll find that out. (laughs)
0: so let's go a little deeper into your career you know you meet people when they become observant they end up working at yeshiva or working for a jewish nonprofit, and it's very easy to balance your work and personal life you're getting off the same days that you need a lot of the people that you're working with are observant but when you choose to go into a career that has many non-observant jews many non-jews it can be trickier to find that balance so what was it like for you early in your career living an observant life but working in a world that doesn't even understand all these things that you're keeping
1: so early in my career I remember I had some some incidents that were you know now I can laugh about them at the time it wasn't funny I remember once telling a senior partner at the big firm where I was working reminding him on, let's say, a Tuesday or so that I had to leave early on Friday. And I was working on a deal. I just wanted to remind him. And he said, when do you have to leave? I said, well, Sabbath, it's the winter. I live in northern New Jersey. It's in Manhattan. So I probably have to leave around 2 or 2.15, a couple hours before Shabbos starts to be on the safe side. And it lasts 25 hours. So don't worry. As soon as it ends, I'll jump in my car and I'll come right back in Saturday night, Uh, you know, when it ends, let's say around 5.15. And he said, you know, that deal, I think it may end probably on Friday. And it could be late at night so how about this could you stay in the office until let's say 3 a.m friday night and then we'll send you home in a car and then you can start the sabbath at let's say 4 a.m friday late at night and then keep it until 5 a.m sunday morning and i'm thinking like what am i supposed to say to him right like you know I'm like you know and that's what i said I, I was i was like you know i was a baby lawyer i'd only been a lawyer i don't know five minutes two weeks four weeks and I said, uh, you know, you're familiar with the story in the Bible of God creating the world? Yeah. In six days? Sure. And then he rested on the seventh day? Yes. I said, well, it's not negotiable. I have to rest at that time when he rested, um, Friday sundown going into Friday evening. And his demeanor changed. He said, I, I, oh, my goodness, I hope I didn't insult you. I would never ask you to violate your beliefs. I said, you don't have to apologize. It's a, it's an ingenious question. And there's are certain areas where there is flexibility. This isn't one of them. Another incident early on, we were at the firm holiday party. It was very nice. They had gotten me kosher food from me and I think one, maybe two other people in the firm that kept kosher, small area of kosher food, all wrapped up. Great. And so at one point, another person, a more senior person said to me, Harry, you may have ever can just hold my plate. I just have to run to the bathroom. So I reached out to hold his plate and I look, there aren't that many foods that are recognizably not kosher. Shrimp is one of them. It's a plate of shrimp. Mm, for okay? sure. Um, happens to be a Jewish guy. It would have been a problem whether he was or wasn't. And I, I pull my hand back and I say, I can't hold that. He says, why not? I said, it's shrimp. It's not kosher. He says, Rothenberg, I'm not asking you to eat it. Just hold it so I can go to the john. I said, I, <laughs> I, I, I can't. Why can't you? I said, so now I have to explain Mara Sion because another Jewish person in the firm might see me holding the shrimp. They're going to say, "Oh, Harry's holding the shrimp with a yarmulke on his head. Obviously, that must be mock shrimp. That can't be real shrimp. So we're able to eat it. So they might mistakenly eat it, think he's like, you know what? Spare me the talmudic lecture. I'll find somebody else to, you know, to hold it." So I had all sorts of of, uh, of incidents like that. And you you find your way, you make your way. I think that in today's day and age, when everyone is clam, not just clamoring for, demanding respect. So why can't we have the same respect? You know, we're we're looking for respect for for people of different genders and different preferences or orientations and different skin color and everybody you know demands and deserves respect. So why shouldn't an observant Jew be entitled to the same respect by the same token? What I always tell people, and this is so important, is that the fact that you're an observant Jew doesn't mean that you get to work four and a half days a week. What do you mean, Shabbos? I have to leave early. I have to leave at two o'clock in the winter. Yeah, that's right. But if you're supposed to work till 5 or until 6 and you're leaving three or four hours early, then you must make up those hours. Stay Thursday night till 10 or 11 p.m. Stay an extra hour every day. But you got to make up that time. But if you're expected to work a 40-hour work week, oh, I'm observant, so I only have to work a 37-hour work week because I leave early on Fridays. No, you have to make up that time. Yes, they have to make reasonable accommodation, but if you don't make up that time, I hate to say it, but it's, it's stealing. It's stealing from your employer. So it's critically important, not to mention the fact that it's a terrible b'chol um, HaShem. A you know, guy works less than anybody because he leaves early on, uh, on Friday afternoons. It's awful.
0: So what advice do you have for someone who's just starting off as a lawyer and is starting to think how upfront should I be with my employer about these holidays I need to take off the fact that I leave early on Friday? They might be thinking, I want to hide as much of this as possible and just find reasons that I leave at this time. Or they might be thinking, I want to set the ground rules from the beginning, but maybe I'm nervous how my employer is going to react to that.
1: So it's very difficult to answer that question broadly because different people in different fields, uh, there may be different answers. In general, there is a debate about this, I, I had this debate back in law school days. I have friends who were uh, – who are observant, and they felt I'm not going to interview with a yarmulke. It might reduce the chances of me getting a job, and I don't want to reduce those chances. I and some of my classmates felt differently. We must interview with yarmulke because we're at Harvard Law School. We're going to get jobs, and we'll make it easier for the people who are – you know, let's say not as good a law school or people in coming through the, you know, the uh, the ranks. And so we felt very strongly about it. So I'm a big advocate of being open about it. I don't want to work in a firm that doesn't want me, that's going to be uncomfortable when I show up with it, with a yarmulke. Um, and also, I don't love the way that that looks. I interview without the yarmulke and then suddenly I show up and I got my yarmulke and my tits is out. and I'm leaving early for this holiday. So I was always open about it when I, I interviewed with the yarmulke. If I got a call back to come fly to them, whatever city it was, I, and, and it was part of the the experience when they would interview you in their city for a callback is they would take you out to lunch. So I would always say, oh, if it's okay with you, you know, um, could we go to a kosher lunch? I could recommend the place. And some firms were like, of course, no problem. We do that all the time. And others would say, sure, you know, we, we haven't done it before, but if you could recommend the place, and I would. And so I find that the more upfront you are, the better you're going to look and the more comfortable it's going to be. Now, that's not an answer for everybody. There could be some unbelievably cutthroat jobs where, frankly, a person might say, I need that job, and I know it's going to affect my ability to get that job, and they'll have to deal with it once I get there. Uh, and if they would hold it against me, that's inappropriate and illegal. And so I'm not going to give them an excuse to to not hire me. So again, it's it's tough to, to tell everybody and, and all the time. But in general, I'm always an advocate of being open, being transparent, uh, and making it clear beforehand and talking it through.
0: And so let's get into another piece of being a lawyer, the need or desire to tell the truth. And one of my best friends is also a personal injury lawyer. And he tells me there are so many times where he knows if he does one little whisper into his client's ears, it could mean millions more. And he even knows further that the person he's going against probably is doing that to him and making it harder and harder for him to win. So how do you go into these cases thinking, I'm just not going to cross that line, even though I know it could be great from a financial perspective.
1: So we could spend more than an interview on that question. So broad strokes, you can't lie and you can't suborn perjury. Having said that, there are so many shades of gray that they're endless. And I'm not saying that to, so that people could roll their eyes and say, oh, here we go. Oh, so he lies. <laughs> he just calls it gray. No. Lying is an absolute no-no. There are certain very, very narrow exceptions when it's okay. One that comes to mind is in mediation. Very often we'll be in front of a retired judge. We're trying to settle the case. The other side will say, here's our final offer. Now I know it's not their final offer. because it's the first time they said it. it's never the final offer. The first time it they say final offer. And I'll go into my client and I'll tell them the offer. My client will say, let's take it. And I'll say, oh no, we're not taking it because there's more <laughs> money in that room. And I'll go in and I'll say, my client rejected it. Well. How is that not a lie? My client said, take it. I just told them my client rejected it. And so I asked that question to a rov who said that at a mediation, that's not lying. It's bluffing. Everybody understands that's part of the game. The same way they're saying our final offer, and it's not. Okay, this one's our final offer. Okay, this one's our final offer. It's clearly not. And so you're able to do the same thing. My client said no. They understand that, that it's part of the game. Someone once challenged me on that and said, well, why do you have to say my client said no? Why don't you just say, I can't recommend that number to my client. And the answer there is that I feel that I'll do better saying my client said no than saying that I can't recommend because that's suggesting, yeah, my client's fine with the number. I'm the problem. That's what, that's what I find personally. However, that's in mediation. That's not at a deposition, and that's not at a, at a trial. So lying is, at, is out of the question. There are other times, though, when it's a matter of trying to help somebody say something in the most advantageous way possible, and that's where it gets very difficult and very gray. Every client wants me to get them the maximum settlement, and I have an obligation to to fight for that. And so it's tricky. And that is why I have my rabbi on speed dial, and that is why he's answered more questions relating to personal injury law, I guarantee you, by a mile than, than, than any rabbi anywhere, because we're constantly asking questions.
0: Does it actually help you to have these Torah principles sort of overlaying your approach to your profession? It's kind of like a safeguard of some of the temptations you might have to try to make it a little easier to win a case.
1: It's definitely important as a safeguard, and that's, I think, the the more obvious benefit. That if I'm always reminding myself, hey, wait a minute, I answer to a higher authority, it makes it less likely that I'm going to do something illegal, unethical, that resulted in embarrassment professionally to me, to my firm, or to the Jewish people. But there's another benefit that's baked into that, and it's not as apparent, that every time I forgo some opportunity because I'm not willing to do that because that will require me to lie and I'm not going to lie or that will require me to, to cheat somebody and I'm not going to cheat or that will require me to violate a halakha and I'm not going to do that. I'm showing God I trust you. I'm telling God, hey, it comes from you. You know, I remember once in particular, it happened to me once. People ask me this all the time about, about Shabbos. I, I got a call on a very serious case Friday afternoon. And the person wanted me to come to the hospital. I think he was calling on behalf of his I forget if it was his wife, it was a relative. So the injured person was not calling. They were not in a position to call. And the relative said, Look, we we got your, you know, recommendation and I spoke to him and he said, You know, we we want you. We want to hire you. Can you come to the hospital now? I said, I can't. I'm a Sabbath observer and Sabbath is in an hour and I can't make it. I won't be able to make it there and back in time. But I can come Saturday night. Okay, fine. We made up. He told me the room number, called him Saturday night to reconfirm. And he said, Listen, I'm so sorry. We were just very anxious. You know, we went to our second choice. You know, he came to the hospital whenever it was, Friday night, Saturday morning. And so I lost the case. Um and uh, but there was never any question. I have no doubt that God made that lost case up to me ten times over without any question.
0: So, all right, so let's transition now to another side of you and the videos you make and the organizations that you're involved in. How did that piece of you grow as the career was taking off on the legal side?
1: So it, it just sort of mushroomed over time. You know, as I said, I started teaching when I was at Ur-Samaach the year after law school. And then I came back and probably ur had some dinner or fundraising event that asked me to speak. And then the next time it was for some other organization, and then it was for some other organization, and it took off. And so I ended up as a a free agent. So I speak for countless different organizations. Some of them are are national or, you know, uh, have national or international reach um, or Sameach and and other similar places. And others are individual places. It's an individual Kiriv organization. It's an individual synagogue. And I don't charge. I'm worried about saying that on something that people are going to hear publicly. Um, but I don't, I, don't, I don't charge, thank God. You know, God gives me enough income otherwise that I don't have to, uh, to charge to speak. And I, I always say to myself, I just wish somebody like me had come to speak to me when I was a teenager. And so I travel the US and I travel the world. What I really enjoy is when I go to a city, what I'll often do is a talk for a care of organization, and so maybe it's students at a college campus, maybe it's young professionals. And then I like to do a talk for a high school. And then there's, there are classes that I do for Kolel Avrecha, which I love doing, where I go through really tricky, interesting cases that come up in my legal practice, obviously without naming clients or giving any identifying details. About 2012 or so, so we're talking about uh, 10 years soon, I started doing this weekly video. Uh, Rabbi Goertz and Partners in Torah pinned me down. I had had the idea for a while to to do like a a weekly conference call with, uh, with young professionals, students that I would meet, that I would host for Shabbos or that I would meet at the talks that I was doing. And I never got around to doing it. And he said, look, we want to do this weekly video. We will send somebody to your house to film it. And I said, OK, it's a massive commitment because it's every week. And it's got to be under five minutes. I try to keep it under four, but certainly under five. Um, a couple years ago, I went back home. So now my, my new uh, producer is Orsa Mayach, And so I work on that video every week. And the aim every week is that it should be something interesting about the PAR show. I didn't realize that. And it should be something that you, Jeff – Tell over at your Shabbos table to your kids, running a, you know an observant home. Hey, I heard something interesting in the Parsha. You know, let me tell it over to you. And I just got back from a trip the the, the week before last. We took eighty uh, some uh, Jewish fathers uh, to Israel, and it is it's an unbelievable trip.
0: So let me ask you a last question about all the speaking and the trips you're organizing. Uh, I've seen this now with the podcast. Is someone will contact me afterwards and say you know, there was something I heard that inspired me and I'm thinking of like taking on this life, but where do I start? It seems overwhelming. Like there's so much to it. How do I begin? So I imagine this happens to you. Someone comes up to you after a speech you give or on one of these trips and says, I'm in, like you you got me. What do I do first? So I'm I'm just curious when you try to lay that out for people without overwhelming them, how do you start?
1: I do answer that often for individuals, but it's usually after having gotten to know them a little bit. And so you know, if you see that somebody has some sort of uh, a natia is drawn towards something, uh, you know, I have a friend who used to tell people who were thinking about taking on kashras. Somebody would get inspired. Oh, I want to keep kosher. So my friend who was a rabbi, he would say, great, start keeping kosher Tuesday afternoons for lunch. And they'd say, what do you mean? he said, just Tuesday afternoons for lunch. Once you have Tuesday afternoons for lunch under your belt, so now go to Wednesday afternoons for lunch. Then you could add Thursday dinner. Then you could add Sunday, like just slowly but Surely, okay? Having said that, what I always recommend to people is set aside time to study. If you can't set aside time one-on-one, so on the internet, there are all sorts of inspiring things and all sorts of inspiring websites where you can find somebody that speaks to you. Um, And that's – and you've got to bake that time into your schedule. It's great. I don't want to take anything away from anybody who studies on your own, but it's not going to be as effective and it's going to be so much easier to blow off that time if it's on your own than if it's with an active study partner.
0: All right, so this is good stuff, and we like to close with all of our guests with the lightning round, so you can't think too fast. We're going to give you some super fast questions. You can bring out your sports competitiveness on this one. You ready to go? Ready to go. Okay, question one. Do you believe that TV legal dramas are an accurate depiction of your profession?
1: I can't answer that because I don't watch enough of them, but in the limited number that I have watched, it's very rare that things get wrapped up that neatly and you get these big surprises in the middle of trial. That's rare. What's your favorite legal term? My favorite legal term, I guess is race ipsa loquiter just because it sounds so completely ridiculous. It's Latin and even people that know what it means have difficulty explaining it. I don't have time to explain it. I'm going to leave it for you and your listeners to go look it up <laughs> and try to figure it out. Race ipsa loquiter.
0: All right. You're our first guest to give uh, homework to our listeners. Thank you for that. All right. Question three, what's a commandment or mitzvah that you somehow wish every lawyer had to stick to regardless of their religion?
1: I would say, um, Tzedakah, um, and I say that because one of the first assignments that I got when I was a baby lawyer, we were representing partners in a certain firm and my job was to go through their tax returns. Tough to explain why I had to do that. It had to do with the debts that they had to pay and, and I had to go through and and tease out the amount of income that they had taken from the partnership. And I saw that some were very generous. It was very impressive and others. It was shocking to me how little was, um, was going to charity based on the salaries that they were making. And I just remember thinking that, I'm on a first year salary, I'm not making what these guys are making, and I'm giving more away because I'm I'm, I'm aiming to give uh, you know, the Chavetz Chaim says, give 10% if you want the minimum back from God. If you want more, give more. So back when I started, I used to always try to give 11, 12%. And when I started making more money. I shot for 15%, and now for for you know many many years, I try to give 20% of my net income after taxes, you know, way to charity. And I think that that would be number one. If there's a Jewish lawyer out there that's that's giving less than 10%, and I know it's difficult, um, but that's the one that I would uh, that I would recommend. And it's the only mitzvah where god says test me he says in malachi test me you give the charity and see if i don't open the storehouses of heaven for you it doesn't say that on any other one and those are his words test me
0: all right last question the judge says we're going to take a 30 minute break what is your kosher go-to grab lunch item that you'll get every time
1: so for me i'm a, a giant fan of bananas because they're just the obviously the most perfect food ever I don't know if that's enough, so I might add on a granola bar and then also absolutely a Diet Coke because I got to have that caffeine boost.
0: All right, banana, granola bar, Diet Coke, and back to work to win the case. Yep. So, Harry, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos.
1: You're very welcome.
0: Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T A C H L I S media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.